0: Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk Reading from the ESV version, Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of its present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, that was that was great, wasn't it? Well done. Amazing. Um, I should say as well, hi, it's really good to to see you. Um, my name is How. I'm still getting this <laughs> How, and then Ard. Oh, that was terrible, wasn't it? I need to practice on that, Amanda. I'm really sorry. Uh, not such a good. I, I am the pastor here of Westminster Chapel, and everyone is welcome here. Whoever you are, whatever you're like, whatever your background, I hope you get that sense. I'm sure I'm going to get better at that as I practice more <laughs> over time. But uh, I'm slowly trying to learn because we want to be a really welcoming and accepting church to every everyone. Um, whoever you are, whatever you're like, if you're here for the first time, you're a family member wondering how on earth did I end up in this crazy place, this church? Please. Try and feel at home. I don't know if that helps, but we'd love you to feel more and more at home in this place. Welcome to you as well. If you're watching us online, especially for the first time, do say hi uh, in the chat. I want to start this message. Uh, We're in a new series today. It's based in Ephesians' first century letter. We're right towards the end of that. Been preaching in this for nearly over a year by sharing with you my love of films, because I just love talking about my love of films at any opportunity that I can get. And a particular moment in films, which I really like, most people think it's really cheesy, but the speeches of films. Anybody like speeches in films? Yeah, come on, Greg likes them. Uh, Anyway, Ollie, a few others, no one else, too cool to admit, yeah, thank you. Um, They're great moments, aren't they? They're they're a bit corny and cheesy, but they appeal to something within you to motivate and inspire you to, to do better in life in some way or another. Uh, And I could go through loads of these, but I had to keep it short for for the sake of our time together. Um, So here's just a few to set the atmosphere for what we're studying. And it will make sense why. But Independence Day, you might be able to do this a bit better than me. You know, that moment Independence Day where the president is saying, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today is our Independence, Independence Day. Okay, we're going to warm up as we go along. My favourite speech, I, I guess, from films of all time, I am a Lord of the Rings fan, so you might know where I'm going. I'm going to the return of the king, to Aragorn at the Black Gate, when he says, A day may come when the courage of men may fail, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day... This day we fight by all that you hold dear. I bid you stand, people of Westminster Chapel. Now, why am I saying all of that? That's the tone, that is the feel. You heard the Bible reading, but that is the kind of context that should be going through your mind. If you need a, a musical background to Scripture, that 's more what it should sound like as we get to Ephesians chapter six, verse 10, which we 're really getting to one of the greatest speeches that 's ever been written by a man called Paul in the first century. He was a killer of Christians, by the way, who had an encounter with Jesus that turned his life around, and he became the great preacher of Christian <laughs> truth, and he was persecuted for that. he suffered, he was beaten, he was flogged, he was put in prison ultimately. He would die for his faith and conviction that Jesus is God. And so he's writing to churches that he's helped raise up. He's writing to Christians who've come to faith through his ministry in a place called Ephesus. It's a real place, by the way, and in the region around that area. And you can imagine him with tears in his eyes, this great father of these churches, encouraging them, knowing they're going to go through persecution, to stand Be strong, he's saying to them. Be strong in the Lord. And so he begins this section with the word, finally. Finally. It's taken him six chapters to be able to say that. It's not just some little, oh, there's this random bit of the armour of God that gets added into the end of this letter. Why is it there? No, no, no. Finally, he's drawing, I'm drawing all the threads together of everything that I've said so far in this letter. He's saying, this is what I was really wanting to say right from the very beginning. And all these foundations that I've shared in the different chapter one, two, three, four, five, they're all coming together now. In this moment, finally, he's, he's making sense of everything that, that he has shared. And he's answering some of the biggest questions of life in doing so. Again, you might think, how is any of this relevant to me? Well, it's relevant to you because he's answering questions like, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? That's a massive question. He's answering questions like, why, with all the technological progress that we seem to be making in society, do we still see so much uh, regress in so many ways? Where a terrorist can kill an MP, where people are suffering and dying all the world, forced into prostitution not far away from here in London. How can all of those evils be going on in a society that's meant to be all about progress, progress, progress? How do you make sense of that? Or it may be that your question is just really far more simple than that. Why is life such a struggle? Full stop. Paul's answer, God's answer to you, is that you're in a war. You're at war. And either you don't know that, or you massively underestimate your enemy and the person of Jesus. You're at war. Now, this may sound strange, so I want to give a bit more context. So it's not dissimilar to what happened in the coronavirus pandemic. I think many of us in the UK, I won't mention names, um, were rather blasé about this coronavirus thing that was happening in other parts of the world, sort of far away. We'll be all right. British stiff upper lip and all that. We'll be fine. We're an island nation. We're protected. Um, SARS didn't affect us. We'll be fine. But COVID-19 was already on our shores, marching against us, soon to discover with exponential life-taking effect. And we had to move to a wartime mindset very quickly. And you get Boris Johnson, our our prime minister, quoting Winston Churchill. And then here, as you can see, President of France, Macron, saying, we are at war. And he describes it with an invisible and an elusive enemy, this virus. A war that we didn't even realize was going on. Now, roll back the clock to, like, say, 2017, and imagine if you were trying to go around saying, like, there's going to be a war, and it's going to be against a virus, and, and presidents and prime ministers are going to be talking about it, and we're going to be all at war with this virus. You would think that person was mad, right? They would be crazy. They're into sci-fi, fiction, fantasy films, and, and all of that. But, hey, it's real, So if you are thinking about what I'm about to share with you about a spiritual war with an invisible and far greater elusive enemy, I just caution you to suggest that I might be mad. Now, that's your opinion to make. I'm fine. I'm not going to force you into that. But you can judge by the way I'm speaking and sort of carrying myself. Or you can maybe get to know me and just make your mind up. Am I mad? Um, and uh, another argument you might say, well, hey, he's been brainwashed. Maybe he was raised in one of these Christian homes, you know, where they like brainwashed their kids. I don't think that really happens, by the way. But in, in any way, I wasn't. I became a Christian when I was 21 years old. Uh, whilst I was studying law at university, I hope I kind of made a logical, wise decision, a reasonable step of faith as as well in all of that. But I have come to the conclusion that the reason why there is so much evil and suffering in the world is because there is a powerful, personal, evil agency who is real and his name is the devil. And I'm here as a pastor of this church today that you might, Be wise to his schemes. That you might not be outwitted by Satan. That's the language of Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So that you can fight the good fight of of faith. This is a call to those who follow Jesus. We're called to fight, but hey, we're not violent people. We're men to love our enemies. It's a spiritual kind of violence. In fact, the whole of the New Testament, Jesus' teaching, it leans towards pacifism. And if you, you have to argue quite well, even for the doctrine of a just war, for example, and it's right in self-defense, because Jesus speaks so strongly against violence. We're not go and kill the infidel, violent kind of religion. That's not us. But we do have a very spiritual battle to fight. It's a fight for faith. It's a fight for our faith, for others' faith, for the faith of Jesus Christ. We're called in this sense to war. We are at war. You are at war, whether you realize it or not, with evil rulers, evil authorities, with evil cosmic powers. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, with the power of the prince of the air. That's the devil, that's Satan. So I've got three points to make to to help us in this spiritual war. The first is, the devil and co are real. And the question is, are you wise to their schemes? Are you wise to their schemes? Now, Jesus brilliantly unmasked Satan and what he's like in first century biography recorded by one of his disciples, John, um, in John chapter 8, verse 44. Let me read it to you. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice that this is a battle between truth and lies. Lies, lies, liar, truth, truth on the one hand, that Satan comes and he uses Deception to destroy your life, to ruin your life. So I want to give five common deceptions of Satan. And the first of those deceptions is that he seeks to deny his existence. You see it in the film The Usual Suspects, character verbal played by Kevin Spacey, famously says, maybe you know the quote, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And if you live in the mindset with the world, in a world where, where, where this evil being doesn't exist, therefore you're not at war, therefore your presumption is my life should be easy, right? I should have the most comfortable, luxurious, happy life. There's no war, there's no evil going on, there's no darkness out there to avoid, there's nothing like that. And then when that doesn't happen, because that's not the way that this world is like and you get frustrated, instead of demonizing demons, you end up demonizing other people, and the battle becomes against flesh and blood because they're stopping you from getting what you want in life, and the, the war goes on, and they're the evil ones out there. Now you might at this point be needing a, a second opinion. might be, who's Howard? What does he know about all of this? Um, so I'm going to turn now to Professor C. S. Lewis, someone far more intelligent than me. He's an Oxford professor. Um, He's the author of The Screwtape Letters and um, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe voted the nation's most favorite book in 2019. Um, He was an atheist who later in life became a believer and a follower of Jesus. And he writes this in the preface to this excellent book, The Screwtape Letters. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The point is, don't fall for either. Don't give Satan a foothold in your life. That's Ephesians chapter 4 verse 27 by the way. That's the first deception. The second deception is Satan wants you to doubt God, to doubt his character and to doubt his goodness. This happens right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Now whether you believe that Satan is a literal serpent or whether that that is a description which is true but figurative, it doesn't really matter. Christians will go on debating that until Jesus returns. The point I want to make is what he's says, did God really say? To sow the seed of doubt, can you trust him? And not only that, did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now God had only outlawed, he said, don't eat of this one tree. You can have eat of all these hundreds, maybe thousands of other trees, except this one tree. But Satan is coming to say that actually it looks like God has outlawed you from eating of any tree. you get the point. And he's withholding something good from you. He doesn't want you to have the knowledge of of good and evil. So he must be mean, cruel, tyrannical. Why would you want to worship him? Why would you even want to believe in him? That's deception number two. Deception number three is to downplay the seriousness of sin. Satan's next line of of attack is, having to tempt you to sin is to say, you will not surely die knowing that they would be judged and they would die. They die immediately spiritually. They're separated from God, who's all goodness. They've rebelled against him. There's now a break, a chasm in that relationship. And they should also have died physically immediately as well. But by the grace of God, he doesn't judge them in that moment. But death enters the human world. This is Satan's tactic. It can be like just, just a few minutes of porn. Looking at a few of those pictures, just a little bit of titillation. No one's going to notice. It won't harm you, won't hurt anybody. That's absolute rubbish. I've had so many conversations of that's how the slippery slope begins. Falling, getting trapped and trapped and trapped. So they're so addictive, they find it very hard ever to get out and break free of porn. And their life becomes defined by it. That's deception number three. Deception number four is destabilizing identity, the attack upon your identity. Instead of rejoicing in being made, you're the pinnacle of God's creation as a human being. His very good creation and he entrusts you with the privileged rule over that whole creation. To draw out all that is beautiful in this world and to steward it for his glory and to bring a great return out. Wow, what a privilege. But don't do that. Just, just don't, don't, don't do what God says. Follow your heart. That sounds like good news in our culture today. But it's not if your heart is leaning towards that which is wrong, that which is evil, and your heart often is so conflicted. You know, I want I want to be healthy, but I love junk food. <laughs> it's like, what's my heart telling me? I don't know. It's such a it's not a it's not a wise way to live. I love the way that John Mark Comer draws this out in his, his book's excellent book by the way, Live No Lies. Um, he describes it like this: This is Satan speaking in his imagination. Look at this bright, shiny thing, this tree that God said was off limits. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat it, take it, seize it, do it, experience it, follow your heart. Your inner intuition is the most accurate map to the happy life that you crave. That is the lie. And you end up being hopelessly confused, trying to live up or be somebody of your own creation. And it's crushing to try and sustain that in this world. There's an attack against your very identity. This is what happened for Jesus. Right at the start of his ministry, at his baptism, the father comes and speaks over him and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Then he goes out into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. What does Satan say to him? If you are the son of God, then you would do this. If you are the son of God, then you would do that. He's, he's challenging at the very core. <laughs> you're not really the son of God. What do you think you are? You'd be doing miracles like this and that. And over here, you jump off the temple and the, the, the angels will catch you. Well, you can't be the son of God. Isn't that true for a Christian that Satan will come and he'll tell you, you're not a child of God. You really think you're a child of God and you behave like that this week. You've not read your Bible. You can't be a child of God. You've not read your Bible. You get it. This is the attack, the attack on identity. Deception number five is depressing accusations. What happens when you eat the forbidden fruit? Whatever that is for you. Could be pornography, could be lying, could be being lazy, just interested in yourself. And you walk on by an injured person on the side of the road. I think of being the priest or the Levite rather than the good Samaritan. You're not not caring and you feel a sense of of guilt and shame and condemnation and attack that comes upon you when this happens. Even though for a Christian, it says, there is now no condemnation in Christ for those who believe. Hallelujah, Romans chapter 8. But you feel the weight of that, you feel you feel like insults and attacks are being hurled at you. Well, are you surprised? Because Satan's name, the Satan, means the accuser. And he comes to accuse you, to make you feel rubbish, to make you feel worthless. To get you living in the slough of despond, as John Bunyan would call it. Like a, a miry, sticky, muddy pit where you can barely move. You're still so overwhelmed with your own sense of rubbishness, hopelessness and helplessness. And you feel like you're the only person in the situation, like you're so alone. This is, again, lies of Satan. He wants to divide and conquer. If he can get you separated from your Christian friends, from your church family, he's one. He's, he's celebrating. As soon as I can down play the value of the church. Don't need church. Don't need those people. Just you're on your own. And if you were to ever tell them this about yourself, this struggle, they would reject you anyway. This is, this is the lies of Satan. He takes something like individualism, which has some good in it, and he utterly ruins it. So we're all turned against one another and only looking out after ourselves. And that to some extent can be, because we're so conditioned with this in the West, how you would then read Ephesians chapter 6. It's about me putting my armor on, getting ready for my fight for God so I can serve him and live the best life that I can live. Well, actually, definitely not. In fact, every you, pretty much I think every single you in this entire six chapter letter is plural, not individual, not individual. So better translation would be the sort of Southern American translation of y'all. It's about y'all putting the armor on together. It's about y'all helping one another put each other's armor on. That's the whole point. That's the community we're meant to be, to care for one another, to guard against this evil master of misunderstanding who's going to make you think worse. You think badly about others and then think that others are thinking badly about you to disconnect you from others like that. No, we're called to stand against that, to put God's armor on for each other and together to be a strong army for him. Now, before we move on from this section, and I'm hoping that as I'm going through some of these deceptions, that you're thinking about, here's where I've struggled in the past. Here's the lie that I'm tempted to, to most believe. But as you're thinking about that, I don't want us to go the wrong way. And that would be to say, well, I'm off the hook then. I only make bad decisions and poor choices because it's Satan and it's his fault, not my fault. Well, we can't do that, unfortunately. We're still responsible. And the person who I think puts this the best for me is a man called, It's one of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus. And he says that we basically provide the wood... That's our disordered loves, our, our wrong priorities, the kind of the flesh, as some might describe it in Scripture. We provide the, the wood and the devil provides the flame. Now, I would add to that that there is this other part, the world as well. So our, our battle is against the world, the flesh and the devil, the anti-trinity. And the world is like an echo chamber, normalizing and sort of fanning into flame, the devil's flame, which is taking effect upon our word. That's, that's the battle that we are in together. So how do we fight this battle? How do we stay strong in it? Well, that's my next two points. Point number two is, so you are at war. Whose strength are you fighting in? So you're at war. Whose strength then are you going to fight in? And maybe your temptation would be like mine in this moment. Be like... I'm gonna do it. Like I'm hearing, like the great speeches of Independence Day. Come on, in your strength, we're amazing. We're America. We can do anything. (laughs) That kind of moment. It's like, isn't that like, and isn't that what often people think Christianity is like? Come to church, get a motivational pep talk. You're going to go out and be a bit better in the world. Pull your socks up. Try harder. I tell you, that is anti-Christianity. We're not saved. By good works, we're saved for good works. We are freely loved in Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Be strong, not in your own strength. Be strong in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Jesus, in him. What does that look like? Well, it goes on to explain it. In the might, in the strength of his might. In the strength of his might. What does that might look like? Well, that might can create out of nothing. That's how powerful God is. He can simply speak things into existence that weren't there before. That might can part an entire sea for people to walk through it, to be rescued out of slavery and tyranny, to enter into freedom. That might can surrender to death on a cross for love and overcome death and the grave and be in control of the entire process, though evil people are actually carrying it out. That is power that is unbelievable and it's rooted in a power of love, of a heartbeat for salvation, to bless, to save, to rescue, to restore. That is the power that is at work behind the universe. And unbelievably, Paul has been saying, and this is what he wants Christians everywhere to get hold of, right from his prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, that immeasurably great power, verse 19, chapter 1, is towards those who believe. You What? To us? This power is is to us? I often think of this story, I don't know how true it is but I've heard it before, I imagine it doesn't really happen, at least in the West at the moment, I would guess, um, of baby elephants in the circus. And the way that they said they would manage them is to put like a rope around one of their legs and to tie it to like a, a metal stake in the ground so that at that age, the baby elephant would pull against it and not be able to escape. But as that elephant gets bigger and stronger, becomes a several ton animal, could easily just rip up that stake from the ground. It doesn't because it's been conditioned to think that it is a weakling when it is awesomely powerful. I think that is true of Christians and of the church today. Paul does it again. He has to come back in Ephesians chapter 3, his second prayer. It's really interesting. This is how he prays. This is how we should be praying. Ephesians chapter 3, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. What does it say in this verse to the power that is at work in Christ? To the power that work is in God, in the Father? No, to this immeasurable power that is at work in who? In us, in us, in us, in you and me, the church. Are we limiting what God can do? Because we've not had this moment, this apocalypse, this unveiling, this revelation of the awesome, almighty power of God and his generosity that he gives that to us as individuals, but to us together. That's the second point. We fight in the strength of Christ. The third point is you're under attack. How can you stand firm? How do you stand firm? By humbly accepting that you are a weakling. And resolutely saying, I'm going to stand firm in the truth that Christ is awesome and powerful. It's the call to stand. It comes at least three times in this little section, Ephesians chapter 6. We're called to stand, to stand, to stand firm. Also to withstand. There's a sort of fourth mention. And that's really important. We're called to stand. You're not called to advance. You're called simply to stand. To stand what? Stand upon Christ. To stand in Christ. To stand for Christ. To stand with Christ. You don't really have to move ground. Why is that the case? Because the victory's already been won. We're standing as victors in Christ. D-Day has happened. The Normandy invasion, Operation Overlord has taken place. The outcome of victory in Europe was inevitable from that moment onwards. It could not be held back. The same is true of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The victory has been won. Satan's weakness has been exposed. Jesus has turned Satan's weapon of death against him at the cross by dying to defeat him and overcoming death and being raised from the grave. He is victorious. And so we as Christians, we're meant to be more like Gandalf. Here we go. From the fellowship of the ring. We don't say quite the same thing, though. He's on the bridge of Kazakh Dune, and up against him, if you don't know, that's a Balrog from the pits of hell. Of hurling lies and accusations against him. I'm adding that bit in. And we're there to stay something like this. I am a child of almighty God, the awesome creator of the universe, whose love is, knows no bounds and that I cannot be separated from. You shall not pass. Do you get that? That's what you should be saying. Lies, calm accusations, criticisms, not into my head. You shall not pass into my skull. We stand against that. How do you do that, though? How do you do that? You ruminate and you meditate on Christ and the glory of Jesus, the unfathomable riches of grace and the salvation of the gospel. And I want to argue that that is what putting on the armour of God is all about. That is what we are doing when we put on the armour of God. It's really a parallel for what he's already said. Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's verse 25, where he says, put on the new self, Paul is saying. It's the same thing, put on the new self or go back. Ephesians chapter 1, here are all these wonderful spiritual blessings in Christ that we are to clothe ourselves with, to put on the spoils of the victory of Christ through his cross and resurrection. That is what this whole section is about, to put on the armor of God. It's why then the first item of clothing is the belt of truth. Truth to destroy Satan's lies. It's really interesting to me that the way that Jesus fights against Satan when he's in the wilderness, Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, what does he do? Accusation, temptation comes, he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Truth, capital T truth that destroys lies. So when Satan comes at you and he says something like, God will never forgive you for that. Not Again. You've done it again. That sin is so big. He can't forgive you for that. You can say to him, 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not about my, the goodness of my repentance. It's about his faithfulness to forgive. That's my confidence. Or you want to, ah, you should hang your head in shame, Christian. You've had a terrible week. You've not read your Bible. You've barely prayed. You've not shared your faith. You've not been kind to others. You've been living for yourself. You are a rubbish Christian. You say to Satan, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. You say back to him things like, I'm not saved by works. I'm saved by grace. This is a gift of God. Yes, I know I'm bad, but he's gracious and he saved me. My salvation doesn't depend on me being a good person. It's about him being good to me in the cross of Christ. This is our confidence. Now, last week I had a moment, and it was late at night in an evening, where I suddenly felt so anxious and so overwhelmed by the fear of death. I was totally gripped by it. I could suddenly die in my life. What would it have amounted to? And Oh, oh I've got to sustain, got to fight to keep myself ongoing and, and, and live for as long as I can in this earthly world. You, you can feel like that sometimes. It's like, oh, no, this is spiritual warfare. Jesus has said that, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, even though they, they die, they're going to live forever. Hey, death, where is your sting? Jesus broke through the grave. He's alive forever in glory. And this life is short, but eternity is forever. That's my confidence. And I'm going to live like that, not in a fear of death that I might go at any moment. Hallelujah. This is the kind of, we've got to preach this to ourselves, but we've got to preach it to each other. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 speaks about speaking the truth in love to one another, truthing the gospel to one another with love. It's not so much this verse about, let me go and point out your sin. And I'll just do it with a bit of love as well, speaking the truth in love. I think that's, this is about bringing all the gospel truth he's been talking about to help people. I want to help others understand that. I want others to help me understand that. He goes on, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, that we are to address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and prophetic and words. This is another way that we are to gospel one another. We're back to the y'all. This is about us together putting the armor on so that we would be stronger together because we can do more together than we can apart. And that's the whole theme of Ephesians, isn't it? Oneness, unity, Jew and Gentile, these irreconcilable groups coming together through the grace and blood of Christ, laying down their sense of hatred and animosity towards one another. That's all broken to be this one new humanity who is showing God's reconciling work to the entire universe, that what's happening in the church is a picture of what's going to happen everywhere. And this is the amazing good news. Even heaven and earth are going to to come and be united together that's what they're meant to see and get from us as we fight as one army together one law one baptism one faith one hope one church one body this is the theme that keeps coming one Westminster chapel marching together as an army empowered by love to push back the frontiers of darkness around us to set captives free from devilish deceptions and lies that many of them may not even know they're believing. This is exciting. I think, before, just as I finish, that Paul deliberately makes a connection to Joshua chapter 1, verse 6. Be strong in the Lord. And as they're hearing that, this church, the Jewish community at least would have been hearing this great encouragement from God. Be strong. And very courageous. And it comes to a relatively young and inexperienced Joshua. It doesn't feel like he maybe knows so much of what he's doing in his leadership role. But God has entrusted him to lead his people into the promised land. And they are to gather together in hope of breakthrough. And living in the fullness of the promises that God has spoken over this community for so long. And now is the moment they're going to cross over the Jordan and break into promised land living. I think that's a word for us here at Westminster Chapel. We are turning a corner. We are entering into an era of promised land living. There is a war on, but we are fighting for this city. We're fighting for these people of this city because we love them, because we love our God. And we're going to see extraordinary breakthroughs of gaining back the promised land, the fullness of all that God would entrust to us. We want to liberate. People from tyranny, from evil, from injustice, from lies and from deception. That they might know the love of God. And we're willing to do it at personal cost and risk to our lives. Because he's worth it. Because even when we die, we live. The devil is real. There is a war on. But Jesus is victorious already. He has overcome and so we will overcome. Because greater is he who is in me, who is in you, than he who is in the world. And God is encouraging us, go. Go. Be strong. Be very courageous. Battle well. Put your armour on. Help others to put put their armour on. And we can be stronger together for his glory. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you came and you died in order to rescue us from our sin. Lord, you are awesome. You are amazing. We want to say today that we love you. We love your kindness to us, even though we didn't deserve it. We love that your truth sets us free. We thank you so much that you came to undo the work of the evil one, to break the curse, to destroy lies, to set us free from the prisons of guilt and shame and deception and unbelief that we can labor in. Lord, we thank you that though we are at war and that makes sense of this world that we live in, we're not not alone because you're with us. We're not alone because we're with a church family. Lord, we're not alone because you so give us your power to see breakthrough and transformation. So Lord, help us, help us to understand the extraordinary strength, the extraordinary power that is available to each one, but especially together that we might fight the good fight of faith well and see many, many, many people liberated, set free, injustice, suffering, overturned for your glory. Amen.